Welcome to the Tidal Year, a series about the joy of swimming. With the help of some special guests, we'll discover the human stories behind why we swim. Together, we'll share tales from the places that helped us fall in love with swimming. From Lidos to lakes, by leisure centers in the ocean, I can't wait to dive into these magical places. I'm your host, writer and wild swimmer, Freya Bromley, and every week I'll be chatting to a new explorer, swimmer, author, or campaigner about what water means to them. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, TryHard. I love being in the water, but I don't love what pool chemicals like chlorine do for my skin and hair. TryHard develop water sports specialized skin and hair solutions that eliminate those negative effects of pool chemicals and ocean salts. I'm thrilled to share with all listeners of the Tidal year a very exclusive 15% off when you use code TIDAL at tryhard.co. In this episode, I chat to Chris Romerly. He's the co-founder of Architects Studio Octopi, and like me, he's a regular swimmer at the Serpentine Lido in London. He's also the CEO of Thames Baths, a project which proposed a floating Lido on the Thames. The design has received plenty of public support, including none other than artist Tracy Emin, which is very cool, as well as a really successful crowdfunding campaign. But there's still some waiting to do yet. And I'm really intrigued by this special idea and I'm keeping my fingers crossed for it becoming a reality. Chris is also involved in many new projects to save Lidos around the country. And he wants to bring swimming to more people, especially in urban spaces. I'm so inspired by his vision to get people in cities around the world to reclaim their rivers for swimming. In this episode, we chatted about the Baths Project, as well as the history of swimming in the Thames. And how now we might have lost contact with the river beneath our feet. Plus, we chatted about the playful idea of a pool on the back of a truck. I hope you enjoy this episode. Enjoy. Hello, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And now tell me, have you had a swim this week? It's half term, so the pools are all very busy. How much have you been out? How much do you usually get out for your regular swimming routine? I try and go every morning with a friend of mine who lives in uh, North London and I, I live in South London. We meet at a certain time at the crack of dawn, 6.37 in the morning, and we have a uh, leisurely breaststroke swim up and down the lake for um, half an hour or so and a good chit-chat. But for various reasons, being holiday period, children around, I've only been once so far this week. So I'm hoping to go tomorrow and over the weekend. Serpentine's a beautiful place to swim. I think it's amazing that you can be in the centre of London, have everything go. I cycle there often, and you've got the buses going fast, people rushing to work. You mm. can see people already getting in that kind of city life panic. And then you've just got this beautiful pond, and the swans are there. And it's just, especially in the, when the sun's going up in the morning, it's stunning. I know. So I started swimming there in May last year, I think it was. Yeah, beginning of May last year as a way of breaking up lockdown and trying to keep going with life. And it was brilliant. It was such a great release. And we went pretty much every morning and then found ourselves creeping into the winter. And it got colder and colder. And we just carried on. Obviously, it closed during the, um, the summer of second, third lockdown or whatever it was. But we got to the beginning of December, I think it was. And yeah, it's bloody cold. But it's um, 
sets the day off really nicely actually it's a sort of eight to ten mile bike ride there and back and with that swim and we feel fit and ready ready for the day that's a great intention to start the day with doing that also being out in nature i'm assuming you then get back to your desk and have maybe a little bit more clarity than you would have having already started your day yeah definitely yeah yeah well my window in my loft looks out actually bizarrely straight diagonally across to hyde park i mean it's still i don't know you know, five miles away, but I can look across to Hyde Park, I realised the other day. So I do have, still have that connection with nature. But it is amazing because you get these big skies, you come out of, you know, all the built up area into the park and the big trees in the park. And then suddenly it just opens out in front of you, this huge sky. It's a pretty big body of water, really. And it's still amazing that we're allowed to swim in it. I'm not quite sure how that's managed to be hang on to over all these years, but it feels such an honour to swim there, I must say. It really does. Yeah, and it's amazing that the swans let us swim in it because they're they're very friendly. They stay clear of you there. But every time I'm breaststroking across, I think, is this okay? Are they going to be fine? I know. I agree. I agree. But we we talked a lot about the urban myth of swans breaking people's arms, and I think I, I, apparently it's not true. We've not had any uh, brushes with them yet. They seem to sort of you know float by, no real problems. The smell. I don't know if you noticed the smell at the height of summer is quite bad sometimes. And I think if you've been swimming all year round, so you have the summer when it's gorgeous and hot and you can, you know, I often get friends to meet me in the cafe afterwards and they say, you've just been swimming in there. And I think a part of me quite enjoys how surprised and amazed they are at that. But also in winter, it's fantastic community. And of course, I mean, most swimmers are just the best people really. But also I find that it's very hard in London to have a chat with people or to feel like you're part of something bigger. Everybody's in a rush and often things can feel quite anonymous. But swimming especially somewhere like the serpentine people want to have a chat they'll ask you how their day is they'll let you know how many degrees it is have you found that over winter especially yeah yeah over winter especially exactly i mean i can't remember how we got into the conversation but anyway i think my the guy i swim with was putting on his cycling trousers or something like that which were ridiculously tight and someone just leant over and you don't want to be wearing tight trousers in the winter to get home or your, your cycling trousers and he, he was just going, <laughs> shaking and he's like yes exactly you'll be here all day trying to get those on as you slowly slip into a bad state but it is lovely i agree the, the community and everyone smiles and everyone is warm and cheerful and yeah i couldn't ask for more i don't know why i haven't joined sooner how long have you been a member only since the beginning of lockdown so I crept in right before they closed memberships but I do agree everybody almost it's as if they've got this secret that they know about the secret to life which is starting the day with a swim and I love as well that you have to get in there before is it nine or nine thirty because it means that I do really start otherwise I would maybe go a little bit later and it gets my day off to a great start no no I agree it's magical because everyone goes oh god I'd love to swim I'd love to swim I said well join up I'm sure they'll open the membership the only thing is you have to be done by nine thirty. And they're like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I won't make that. And it's like, fine, brilliant. Don't come. Excellent. We don't want too many people down there. So, Chris, you're a regular at the Serpentine. You're a morning swimmer, but you also have lots of other ways that you're involved in swimming. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about yourself and also the amazing Thames Baths project that you're working on. So my, my day job really is running or a co-founder, co-director of architectural practice called Studio Octopi. And we've been going for oh, too many years now, 15 years, I think, plus. And back in, in 2013, we entered a, an open call for ideas for the future of the River Thames or future of the banks of the River Thames, I think it was. And it was just a, one of these things which architects spend far too much time doing, free open call, giving away all your ideas type things. 
And it was drawn to my attention by Twitter. And I was, I was actually on holiday with my family in Zurich, standing by the lake with my phone. And it pinged and I looked at it and it said, oh, Chris, why don't you have a go at this open call, Future Ideas of the Thames? But to be honest, I hadn't really thought about the Thames. We, we did lots of private homes and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, sure. And I just thought, why aren't we swimming in the Thames? Well, here we are in the middle of Zurich, people swimming in this, what I called a slimy lake, which a local newspaper caught me out on, quoted me in, in the Zurich Daily Press or whatever it's called. But I was like, well, why, why aren't we swimming in the Thames? So we got back from holiday. We had a month to draw up a scheme for swimming in the river. And we drew a, a half floating, half fixed swimming pool or two pools, one fixed, one floating. The fixed one being like a rock pool and the floating one being like a uh, floating pool or kind of thing or anything else. So both were river water and they were kind of a vision for the future. So it was when the Thames Tideway Tunnel had been built and the sewage had been removed from the Thames. And so we could actively engage with the centre of town in the water and swim around and everything. And, uh, and we presented it in the Royal Academy, which was a nice little touch. So we were shortlisted and then we presented it and the Evening Standard got hold of it a few days later. And that was the start of a journey which we didn't see happening. So it went absolutely bonkers on the Evening Standard and people were like, why are we not doing this? So I just began, I thought, well, we better look into this a bit more. So we, we sort of rummaged around. I met the first of my ambassadors, who is Caitlin Davis, who wrote a book called Downstream, The History and Celebration of Swimming the Thames, which I, I hope you've read. Oh, yes. Wonderful. And such a beautiful cover as well. Yeah, lovely cover. And in that, it had everything I needed to know about the history of swimming in the Thames. You know, it's a good fat book. It's two inches thick of history of swimming in the Thames. So I was like, this is even more reason why we should be swimming in the Thames. So to me, it just seemed like a no brainer. I was like, I'm going to be able to retire in a couple of years. This is going to be such a, a brilliant project. I'll be done. Of course, these things are never quite as simple as one thinks. And various authorities have attempted to squash the idea for various reasons, including water quality, safety, land ownership, um, all sorts of things. But we've battled on. And what are we now? Six, seven years down the road, we have had numerous sites along the Thames. We're struggling with the central London sites. We can't get the authorities to engage with it on a level that would happen in Europe. Apparently, the river's too busy and it's too risky, despite the fact that we've answered all the uh, safety concerns. So in a nutshell, that's it. But the beast refuses to go away, which is the exciting thing about it. So every time I think the project is well and truly washed up, done for, up crops another site, another call comes in. So we, we've looked at, at locations from Kingston out in the, the west all the way to Barking in the east. And we're getting closer to one of these sticking. I do generally believe it will happen. And when it happens, it'll be wonderful for Londoners to have it. It'll be the first one since 1875, which was the last one called the Charing Cross Baths, which was just along Victoria Embankment from the Houses of Parliament, just along there. It's been done before and it can be done again. And it's just about changing people's perceptions and understandings of what we're doing, why we're doing it. And it's for the community. It's for London. It's not a private venture. It's not the London Eye. So yeah, we'll see. Anyway, I'm banging on. It's great to bang on about it. It's such a wonderful project. And of course, something that would be really fantastic for Londonism for the community. And we'll talk a little bit more about the authorities and the challenges there. But first, I'd love to hear some of the things that you've learned about the Thames in this process and our history of swimming in the Thames. Maybe some of the things that surprised you most that you learned. I guess the most surprising thing that I always bring up is the story of the naked jockeys. 
they used to do swimming races from Battersea Park across to Chelsea. They used to swim across the Ten naked. I don't think the I don't think the horses came with them, but they might have. But there used to be endurance tests up and down the Thames as well. Yeah, so all this madness happened, and then someone um, jumped in front of the boat race, which you may remember, which brought in a bylaw, which then said the central London section between Putney and Crossness. Now it is illegal to swim in the Thames without the prior permission of the PLA, and unfortunately they don't give any permission to swim in the Thames between those two points. So one of the reasons why the scheme changed from swimming actually in the river to swimming in a craft floating on the river was to overcome that issue. So we're not actually swimming in the Thames, and I certainly wouldn't advocate anyone jumps into the Thames in the central London section because it is dangerous. The water is dirty after rainfall, and the currents are very, very strong. So, you know, one of the reasons we did that was to to move it into a floating pontoon, to a boat type thing, and then fill the boat with water which has its own engineering feats, of course, because usually when you fill boats with water, they sink. So we've, we've had to overcome that with a team of consultants. So I guess it's a place of wild eccentricities, bureaucracy, but also above all, and I think this really comes back to me every time I hit a blank wall, this is a public space. This is London's largest public space. And I think the central London section is something like seven times the size of Hyde Park. So as a public space, it's almost totally inaccessible in the centre of town. Besides breaking the law for getting in it, you know, there are so many restrictions. And and yes, it is a busy waterway. It is like trying to cross the M25. But other things happen there as well. You know, the London Eye was able to cordon off the whole section, you know, below the bottom of the London Eye with those boys. So it is possible to separate out areas for other community resources or community activities to occur. And I, I think it's really important that that is not forgotten. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And one of the words that is used on the website and just in lots of the press that's been around this project is reclaiming and reclaiming the river as a communal and a community space. And I think that is really important, especially in a city as big as London. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, no, I've forgotten about that important reclaim word. But And actually, since writing that, I'm sure maybe it happened before as well, and I wasn't aware of it. But since writing that, there's been a lot of campaigns up and down the country about people reclaiming their waterways. You know, we're doing in discussion, we've done some very sort of high level concept work for Bristol as well, Bristol Docks, for a, a campaign there of swimmers saying, well, why can't we swim in the Bristol Docks? They're not what they used to be in, in the sense of they're not a major trading hub any longer. Occasionally a boat goes past, but this is a community resource. This is a beautiful body of water. We want to get in it. And what does it take to get in it? And I, I think this is happening in a lot of places and also the chasing of cleaning up the waterways as well, the streams, the chalk streams, so that they are safe for people to use, to meet around, to swim, to paddle. It's not always about swimming either. I keep saying, so you know, some people hate swimming. So it, it is actually just about getting up close with the water and being able to push your legs in the water safely and, and just enjoy being down by the water's edge. There's huge health benefits from that. There's a lovely scheme in Bruges. All they did was build a pontoon with a, a canopy overhead and it is a lovely place to go and sit and dangle your feet in the water of the canal there or you know people swim off it in the summer because they're allowed to swim in the waterways uh, as opposed to illegally or you know kayakers come alongside it's just a simple resource which we we just don't seem to do in this country we sort of shy away from encouraging people to get near water it's one of my big frustrations with it all it's very interesting that isn't it and you mentioned the beginning of this journey starting in zurich and being there 
And I think in general, there are lots of places in Europe where, you know, there are signs that say, don't swim, but you see everyone swimming or that there's simply more space and availability and have access to water and to swimming. Were there any places that you've been in Europe that you've seen are really fantastic examples of that? Sounds like Bruges is one as well. And also anything that inspired you about the design? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the design was was inspired by the facilities along the lake in in Zurich, really, and there's that, and and of course the numerous ones in in the harbour in Copenhagen. I mean, it's kind of you know this is nothing new I'm doing here. This is happening everywhere uh, across Europe and further afield. So we're just really trying to change people's attitude to water more than sort of inventing something magical here. So I think going back to your question about amazing places to swim in Europe, I mean, the, probably the best one, best experience I've had recently was in Basel. And we were there for an exhibition we were involved in about urban swimming. On the first evening, everyone who was exhibiting there, so from Plus Pools, who are a floating pool proposal for New York, were there, plus lots of European architects and designers who were working on various swimming things across Europe, another person from the States, from Boston. And we, we, we'd all gathered there. And in the evening on the, on the opening of the exhibition, someone said, do you fancy a swim in the river tomorrow? And we were like, absolutely. Of course. You know, it's a sort of dream question. And they were like, okay, brilliant. We'll just meet by this location and we'll go in. And we could see the river from the gallery and it was moving incredibly fast. I mean, as fast as the Thames does at, at its most scary times, it's sort of high water and charging along. They're like, no, 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 it's just about fine. It's just about fine. You know, we, we can judge this. We go, so we got down there and they kitted us out into wetsuits. It must have been probably about a mile or so from the center of Basel. Kitted us out in wetsuits. I think gave us floats, I think it was, and then uh, led us into the river, which is probably the width of the Thames. And it's a beast of a river. Beautiful colors, obviously, not the brown of the Thames. But in we got, and then the water was moving so fast, we didn't even need to swim. I mean, we just pulled along the river really fast. And the person organizing it had been swimming in the in the river for years. And she was just explaining as we were going along that everyone is taught to swim. Every generation is taught by their elders about how to swim in the river and when it's safe to swim in the river. And that is how she was able to advise us that it was okay to swim in the river, even though it seemed to be moving quite fast. And I certainly wouldn't have jumped in there without them being there. The authorities or the council don't ban people from swimming in the river because everyone knows how to deal with it. So it's a complete reverse to what we have, where we just have a blanket ban. You will be arrested and put in jail if you jump into the river. Whereas there, it's a process of education and osmosis through the generations about how to navigate the river, much in the same way that a sailor will know how to deal with a body of water. It's, you're sailing, whether it's in the Solent or in the North Sea or wherever. And it just seems unbelievably bizarre that as an island nation who has a great sort of sailing past and a great respect of the sea, that when it comes to rivers and inland waterways and things like that, we just panic and just put up fences saying no swimming anywhere. So we bobbed along the river for about a mile. At one point, there was a very large gravel boat coming to a barge coming down the river, and it was very much on the side of the river where we were. And then we could just hear from behind us, the woman who was organising it for us was shouting at us just to keep left, keep left. But actually, it was quite hard to keep left because the current was pulling us. I mean, we did, we, everyone managed to be safe, but it was kind of moments like that where you just realize, like when you're swimming and you suddenly feel a current, the respect for the river is there. And it was safe. It was fine. But you could see how it, it quite easily couldn't be. And this barge was absolutely mammoth. It must have been, you know, it was one of those barges which was 50, 75 meters long. I mean, there was no way that thing was going to stop if someone was in front of it. And then we got out at an organized point on the river, which had a platform to climb out of. 
there was a shower and a loo. Then we just trotted back along the, the towpath back to the building and got our wetsuits off and changed and walked into town. It was wonderfully simple and uncomplicated and, you know, very much felt like you were properly part of the city. Cold, very cold, obviously. It was May and the water coming off the mountains was off the glaciers was cold, but brilliant. That sounds glorious. And I love as well this idea of young people inheriting this understanding and respect for their local environment and for nature and really having an understanding of place and where they are as well, which is maybe something that we don't always do as much. I'm often struck by that when I'm in a park and I'm trying to look around me at trees or birds and I think, I've got no idea what tree that is. Or even in, you know, I grew up in Surrey. So lots of lovely small rivers and places to walk and swim. And my understanding of those places is not that good. No, I agree. But is it better across the country into the more greener areas? I don't think it is, is it? And it's nothing to do with living in or around London or in and around a big city. I think we just don't perhaps have the same respect with nature. I think there's a lovely, I was listening to something on the radio the other day. It was about the disconnect between our generations and, and nature and how important it is that we reconnect with nature because it's just been lost. You know, we're losing species and, and we're losing that connection. And it's all about cars and roads and, and all of that. And I think swimming is part of that. And swimming in rivers is a very good way to reconnect oneself with nature. It really is. I was actually reading a David Attenborough quote the other day when someone asked him in an interview, when did you develop your fascination with nature and animals in the outdoors? And he says, it's not about when I developed it. All children are born with that fascination of animals and want to pick up stones and see what insects are under it. But we lose it. We teach ourselves out of that. And I think actually being in a river and jumping in and swimming is a great way to connect with that again, because you begin to notice how the plants are changing around the water's edge, or you begin to notice the birds because you're in the water with them. And also you have your feet in the water at the bottom and what that feels like and how that's different. It's a great way to rewild. But I think you're right. It is very deep rooted in British culture that Maybe we're not always comfortable doing that as much as some of our European neighbours. I think that's it. And that, that also reminds me of the other reason why getting in the Thames is so important because of that change of perspective, looking back on the city, that actually you're then, you're cradled by nature as opposed to just by buildings. We're so used to what, trotting along and looking down at nature into the river or looking down into the muddy realm and actually getting into it and looking back up again. It's really special. And I think yeah, that was highlighted in Basel, but it also happens in the Serpentine as well. It's lovely to be able to look back up at the tall buildings around. Yeah, and to feel small. And I like the word cradled as well. I think that's a good one. And you you mentioned that there are lots of things within this project that you've borrowed from other places. And I really, I guess a lot of good design is about borrowing a bit here and a bit there. Are there any small touches that you can tell us for those that might be imagining the Thames Bath in their mind, which you should definitely look up because it's a beautiful design that you can tell us about that feel particularly smart or innovative? We've always been obsessed by the water aspect of it, I guess, probably because the thought of swimming in brown waters of the Thames isn't everyone's cup of tea. So I think very early on when the project was sort of developing, the King's Cross Pond was built by Ooze Architect. Did you ever swim in that? I didn't swim, but I had been. And so that's not there anymore, which is a real shame. No, it's gone. Uh, They took it away, sadly. There were lots of magical things about that, lots of things of it which perhaps didn't work so well either. I mean, it was an art installation as opposed to a swimming pool. But one of the most magical things about it was jumping into it and just feeling the softness of the natural water, the untreated, no chemicals, unheated. And it was just a, a lovely feeling that after all these years of jumping into Lido's with chlorine in it and you know the water's all blue because the bottom's blue and all of that, whereas this 
wasn't. It was dark because it was actually very deep for various reasons to do with the ecosystem of the pond itself. But the water was so lovely and soft. So yeah, so one of the things I suppose I look forward to most, I mean, it's kind of puts it not necessarily the architecture of it, but being able to swim in it in a natural pond in the middle of London, I think would be fabulous. But I think, you know, in terms of other elements on it, it's changed a lot over the years. You know, we, we started off with it just being a floating pontoon, effectively, with the pool sunk in it. In the, in the early concepts, didn't even have any changing rooms, which we kind of forgot about. I, I, I don't know quite how we got away with that. We got the images published literally everywhere across the world to the point where I was apologizing to people that they had to look at these images again. But no one ever said to us, where do you get changed? Well, that's during COVID. That's been a big change. I mean, I go to Brockwell Lido and I never really use the changing rooms anymore. It feels nice to actually just sit and get changed by the water and be looking there. And that's actually been quite a nice change. I know. And when you go to the beach, you don't look around for a changing room, do you? You just change on the beach. And so precisely, so it wasn't until the start of lockdown or until I started joining the, um, the Serpentine did I realise that actually we don't really need the, the changing rooms. All the swimming projects we work on, it always comes down to these incredibly tedious conversations about how many changing booths do we need? How many showers do we need? Can they be all communal? Can they be individual? Uh, and it's so ridiculously complicated. And then you go to the beach and everyone's changing on the beach. You go to the Serpentine or Brockwell, I don't know, and everyone's just changing there. It's fine. You can use a towel. It's possible to do. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of these Victorian changing closets that they used to bring out to the beach or especially to tidal pools where there would be this big wooden chamber on wheels that people used to get in and they had a tiny skylight at the top so you'd have to get changed and pitch black so that no one could possibly see you and then they'd wheel it right to the water so that there was such a small chance of anybody seeing anything <laughs> other than your ankles as you were as you were getting in. I know. But they also had to sort of wear woolen swimsuits, I think, didn't they? Sort of full body woolen swimsuits. They're not, you know, even if you did risk seeing someone, you're not going to see anything. And, and now we're quite happy to, um, well, as, as I'm sure you're aware, at the Serpentine, you often catch people just dropping their trunks or whatever. It's kind of the towel is sometimes not available either. Yeah, so we started off with a big open decks. Then we began to look at it more from a commercial point of view. So then we had changing rooms, but we also had shops or a shop, a kiosk. The cakes and then even on some of the larger ones we began to look at having cafe slash restaurants as well as a way of making the finances of it work we wrote our, our own business plan for it which we quickly realized is possible it works the business plan but it's also incredibly complex and it's very site dependent very sort of conditional on where you are along the river we had a, a location outside the tate tate modern at one point which was one of the closer times to finding a successful site but that is a very different location to say out in Barking or Kingston or Richmond or somewhere like that where you've got masses of facilities already on the shore but you've got nowhere to put stuff on the shore so we're always trying to put stuff on the sort of on the shore as well because it's cheaper to put it on the land than on on the river if we can the thing changes but the concept still says the same each time we try and go for the biggest pool we can and everyone tells us every time it's not big enough and we go, yes, I know it's not big enough. <laughs> no one wants a 25-meter pool, but sometimes you just have to have it accept a 25-meter pool. So, yeah, one day it'll happen. And I think, you know, we've started to work on, on smaller ones as well, both in London and further afield in the country. And I think that possibly proof of concept will come from one of those smaller ones, which may be only 15-meter by 6-meter or something, and it's a converted barge and it's on on the River Lee or something like that. And we've got a number of conversations going on about those. But, you know, it's taking its time. 
That's exciting, this prospect of connecting people with nature through innovative design and that it's evolving so much and being taken to all these new places as well. Yeah, yeah. and of course, we did have another, or we do have another concept as well, talking of taking things to different places, a pool on the back of a truck. Very cool. I don't know if you saw that in, in your research. So Swimmobile, again, was a concept started by the local authorities in, in New York and Chicago, I think in the 60s and 80s, I think it was, they resurfaced in Chicago. It hasn't been seen since, and it's just an open-top container on the back of a truck. So we've got a proposal for that going, and we're looking for someone to fund it. We've got a couple of potential leads maybe for next year, but it's a fabulous thing again, and it's about taking water, swimming areas, into areas where you don't usually get it. So it might be in a car park for a, a social housing block, or it might be parked outside a supermarket in their car park and, and kids are running around with great excitement because there's an opportunity to swim after you've done the shopping or when before school. And that kind of idea that kids who don't normally get a chance to go swimming because it's not on the curriculum or the, the school is not doing swimming of any sort, get opened up to this idea of, of swimming and they go, that was so much fun, mum, can I go? to the big pool next time and it's again getting people to water and doesn't it it's not always kids either it could be adults who just haven't had the opportunity to swim so we love the idea of swimmobile that it would do a tour of areas set back from the river you know perhaps areas which previously would have had a connection with the river in terms of trade or travel and then this is actually bringing the river back out to them it's a collaboration with amy sharrocks who's an artist who's done lots of work with water, Museum of Water, amongst other things. So we'd have a program of talks as well about cities and water um, and how precious it is and how, again, we've lost our touch with it, lost contact with the water which runs below our feet. How many rivers have been put into pipes underneath our feet? So our pools come floating, come on wheels and Lidos. We haven't even talked about Lidos. No, we haven't. And I think Lidos are such a great part of London swimming culture, which is fantastic. And I think there's huge support for the work you're doing, especially from the Lido community. Tell me a little bit about the reaction that you've had to all of your projects and what that's been like. Did it take you by surprise after you entered this kind of open call for an idea? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it was, it was bonkers, really, because we hadn't just said we didn't, weren't really doing that kind of, well, we weren't doing any kind of work to do with pools or water at all. So this was a total leap uh -huh, you know, in, into something new. And the responses were, were spectacular, and not only to, to Thames Bath happening, but also to our work on other Lido. So we, we immediately, about a year after starting with Thames Bath, then we were contacted by the guys who were trying to rebuild Peckham Lido in South London. And they said, you know, we've got a massive campaign going. It's got signatures everywhere. What, what do we do next? And I said, well, we should do a crowdfunding campaign. We did that for Thames Baths. Thames Baths raised £142,000 in 30 days. Let's do it for Peckham. Let's see what we can do. We raised 60-odd grand in 90 days, I think it was. So slightly smaller amount, but a smaller community as well, which enabled us to, you know, it kind of empowered the community. They were like, oh, my God, we've managed to collectively raise this money, which now we can appoint, you know, Studio Occupy to look at the design for it. We can get a business plan written. We can get a website for the proposal sorted. And, you know, it's taken a long time for various reasons, but we have finally wrapped up a feasibility study effectively, which says it can be done, how it can be done, a business plan in there, how it can be funded. And now we're waiting for Southwark Council to get back to us and have been for about 18 months, probably, maybe two years now. So if they're listening, maybe you could respond to the emails. It's it's not a, a straightforward job again. You know, there was a Lido on the common there. It was demolished in the 80s, like so many of the others who were built in the 30s. 
And we're just saying, let's rebuild it, build it back in the same spot that some people have like gone, well, you know, nature's taken that site back now. So it'd be a real shame to, to dig it up, which is a fair argument. But, you know, our argument was there was a lighter there, community lighter there right at the beginning in the thirties. Let's just rebuild the same footprint. We're not asking for any more land and let's ensure that it is a community resource. So it isn't a private enterprise and it offers something different to what Brockwell offers. I think we, we were probably going closer down the model of, of London Fields, so it would be heated, but it would also be really wild in there as well. So we were going to, you know, we we're trying not to take out any of the trees as opposed to having the place concreted like the, the lovely 1930s Lidos. We would have grass and, and sort of beach edges to the pool. So it would feel like a wild oasis in the middle of Peckham. So that one came along. And then we had more recently two, two years ago, I think Grange Lido up in Cumbria which is a, an existing one, still survives. It's been closed since the mid-1990s. And again, another community group, Save Grange Lido, have done an amazing job for a community group. They've managed to convince the council to not rule out the possibility of reinstigating the pool, and I say changing. They, the council have plans to turn it into, a, as I say, a flower bed. That's a bit harsh, a parkland. And so they have now have the option, should they be able to raise the money, the community group, that the pool will be, will, will be rebuilt as a heated outdoor Lido, which would be amazing. And it is, I mean, look it up. Range Lido is outstanding in its architectural language and, and composition in terms of its engineering as well. So we, we've, we've sort of embarked on these and we're on the cusp, I think, of securing one other one up in Scotland, which is exciting. So I think that all our hard work with Thames Baths and the work we've done on that and other Lidos is beginning to pay and, and we're able to share that knowledge we've got to try and get some of these things open again. As far too many of them were closed. Mm, I've been traveling to a lot of tidal pools in the UK and it's amazing seeing how many have been abandoned or closed and often because of that reason of authorities, especially local councils, saying, well, we can't, it's not a safe place to swim. We can't lifeguard it. We can't have people in the water. Yet, you know, often tidal pools are very close to the beach. So the options for people are either to swim in the sea, which can be violent and unpredictable, especially if you're a child or not a confident swimmer, or to swim in the safety of a tidal pool. But these tidal pools then get shut down because they can't be lifeguarded. It can be a real shame for these spaces as well. So to put control and power back in local communities to claim these spaces back it's great and i've i've been to some great tidal pools that are run by volunteers by local communities you go to others that don't have any lifeguards there because people can be trusted to be in the sea they can be trusted to be in the tidal pool so it's really interesting seeing how different communities take on these challenges about the balance to keep people safe but also the balance to give people access to water and just to be near it yeah, you've summed it up brilliantly. I mean, the one in Margate, obviously, is very special, which I presume you, you must have been there. But I never see any lifeguards there. But there is a community group which sort of looks after it. Yeah, and it works fabulously. It's not lifeguarded. You can go when you want all year round. So you see people up at the crack of dawn walking from their house in flip-flops and a dressing gown, dipping in the sea and then walking back to their home. What a wonderful way to experience you know, the nature that's on your doorstep. Or, you know, for me, we drove down and had a great day there and it was just a beautiful way to be by the sea. And as you say, the reality is it's probably safer swimming in that than, than swimming in the sea for a lot of people anyway. Although I always, the, the times I have swam in there, there's a handful of times, it's always incredibly cold. But um, yeah, I know it's a lovely pool there. And I think we talked about this briefly on, on the email. I'm researching a book on sea pools, which is 
sea pools, tidal pools, I don't know. Is there a difference? No, I think they're the same thing because they've got water from the sea and the tide. So yeah, I usually use tidal pool and sea pool interchangeably, but that sounds like a fascinating project. Tell me more about that. How long have you been working on it for? Uh, not long now, but six months or so. And I've got a publisher who's who's interested. And yeah, I started off by looking at, uh, I'm sure you've looked at these too, but the ones in Cornwall, obviously. And often it's almost undetectable as to whether it's natural or man-made. And a lot of those early Cornish ones were formed by the miners who would just bring dynamite down to the beach and blow out a hole in the in the rock for a place for kids to swim or community to swim safely because the sea along that coast can be quite uh, violent. I just love that. When I read that, I was just like, God, jeez, again, you know, that's never going to happen these days. But how beautifully simple. And it is just what we're trying to do with Thames Bath. We're just trying to create a pool for the community to swim in. It's not safe to swim in the Thames. So I think that was my that was my starting point. I then sort of began to look at the ones where just the smallest amount of concrete poured over the rock would then form what was already originally a sort of natural enclosure in the rock would then form a tidal pool or a sea pool and that sort of led into then finding the amazing ones in Malta. I've been to Malta and I can't believe I didn't go and see this. It's been back time. They cut a whole succession of these pools into the rocky coastline. So you've got sort of, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 of these sized pools with little steps going down into them. So that, that's bonkers. And then, of course, slightly what I would say was more towards the tidal pool as opposed to a sort of sea pool, which I say is a little bit more natural than a tidal pool, but anyway, splitting hairs maybe, is Alvaro Caesar's pools down in Porto, just outside Porto, which are built along the, the coast there as a way, again, of providing community swimming areas in, in what is a very cold sea there because it, it doesn't have the benefit of the Gulf Stream. So off the coast there, it's very cold. So he built these amazing pools, which I think, Again, we're formed from the rocks, but there's, a, there's an awful lot of concrete in there as well. Have you been to those? I haven't. I've only been going throughout mainland Britain. So when you mentioned the dynamite being used to create tidal pools, I was at Dancing Ledge last weekend in Dorset, which is a great example of that. And uh, you're on the Jurassic Coast, so you're really, as you're climbing down and you have a bit of a scramble to get there, you're touching and feeling and being amongst all of this rock. And it really puts you into the center of that place and helps you really experience the coastline. So although these places feel very beautifully designed in really the most simple way, but Porto, I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, the Porto thing, you need to, you know, as soon as we're allowed allowed out more easily, you need to get there. And it is astounding. And then obviously, architecturally, it's just, it's beautifully done as well. So, you know, you you come off the uh, the beach walk, the boardwalk along the front, and, and then you drop down a ramp to the changing rooms, which are all underneath this sort of metal roofed enclosures. So it's quite cavernous, and you're in these dark areas, and it's, it's timber. It's done in the 60s, so it's very dark, slightly damp, rotten timber changing cubicles in these dark areas. And then you just break out of this, and suddenly you're on the beach in amongst these blue painted concrete pools, which are in amongst the rocks which have got lovely brass handles and ladders to get into them. I've got some amazing footage of a uh, sort of keep fit class happening in the main pool while we were there. So suddenly this huge sound system arrived and then the whole pool just erupted with people doing exercises in it. And then within 15 minutes, they'd all just gone. And that was it, back to normal again, just like, wow. And then beyond that, you've just got 
the Atlantic. So that's um, yeah, it's quite fun talking about it, isn't it? Maybe maybe I should get you involved in the book as well. And I mean, it's kind oh, of oh, I'd love to help. But doing the research has just been wonderful, and I've learned so much about coastal communities and also about society and why these pools are where they are. It has been fantastic because I think there's quite a lot of history written history about Lido's, but not so much about these special places on the coast. No, no, no I, I agree. I agree. I, I can't find anything. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that I've not missed anything. The things I have seen said that, you know, stories have just been passed down through generations and no one's quite sure whether they're true or not. And there's something deeply mysterious and wonderful about it and about something so wonderfully simple, just the need to swim. Oh, well, Chris, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I could continue talking to you for hours about swimming and all the places that we've both been or would like to go. But maybe just as we wrap up, so much of what you've spoken about really is about empowering local people to really reclaim rivers and their local spaces to swim in. If there's one thing that listeners or people can go and do to make that happen in their local community, what is it? I think take someone new to swim each time. You know, it comes back to our conversation about the serpentine and, and people just, when you mention it, they go, how wonderful. And you say, well, come along. Then you test to see how, you know, how much they want to do it. But actually taking someone new to swim is really exciting or to a, to a new location is, is really magical because you, you see in their face the excitement you had when you first went there. You know, I, I took my mum to the certain time. We, she, we, I quickly got her a membership when it opened again a few weeks ago. And then just seeing her, her nervous excitement about being able to get into this, into this lake, which, you know, she, she's a Londoner like me. So she'd been brought up. Walking around it, and then suddenly she was allowed in it, and how magical that was! Such a great, great point. So that's my homework. I'm going to take someone new swimming, and this is a good time to do it because it's warm. I don't have much luck in winter, but right now is a good time to get someone hooked, and hopefully they'll be addicted, so they'll continue throughout winter as well. Exactly, precisely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. It was lovely to chat to you. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks so much for it. What a great chat. I found what Chris said about reclaiming rivers and using innovative design to help communities connect with nature so fascinating. I hope you did too. And don't forget his final advice. Take someone new swimming this week. And if you're the one that's new to the water, well, welcome to the club. You can find Chris in all of the usual places on social media. He's a lovely follow for pictures of old Lidos, gorgeous water design, and just all things swimming. Plus, be sure to check out the Thames Baths project and find a way to support. It's such an important and needed project. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Try Hard. Say goodbye to Chlorine and shop their skin and hair products at 15% off with the code TIDAL. See you next week.